Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's Binyamin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, with Mishmachah's Homefront, a series covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Binyamin, hello to you. Hello, Gedalia. How are you today? I'm doing well, Baruch Hashem. So we're in the middle of a ground offensive in Gaza, and we know from Palestinian videos published reliably by the Abu Ali Express outlet, which is Israeli actually, that Israeli tanks have reached the former Nazarin junction, which is between Gaza City in the north and Burej in central Gaza. We know very little besides. I think you perhaps have some perspective on the location, but I just want to say it's inevitable when you're dealing with Israeli and geography that you come across something historic. So there I was looking at this road. It's the north-south, main north-south axis that goes from Rafiach in the south to the areas crossing in the north. So it totally bisects the Gaza Strip. And this road is called Salah al-Din, right? Or Saladin in English. And it's part of a very ancient road, which our listeners may be familiar with when it was known by the term, the road through the land of the Philistines, referred by the Torah, and it was a road that was traversed by Alexander the Great, the Crusaders, and Napoleon. And I always find these things fascinating to see just how ancient things are in our neighborhood and how kind of like strategic features or like a road just continue to be the same. But do you have any insight into what that particular location at the juncture is, the former Nitzarim junction? Well, let's talk about Nitzarim itself first. Not only is the junction strategically important in this battle, as you noted very forcefully, that this is the north-south road or at the junction of the main north-south road in Gaza. And uh, if Israel is able to control that road, then basically they control entrance and uh, exit from the north to the south of Gaza. So that would be a very important uh, seizure for the IDF if they're able to capture it and hold on to it. If you go back to uh, 2005, which was when we had the disengagement, so Nitzarim actually was the last of the Yishuvim in Gaza, of the Gush Katif Yishuvim that was, that was evacuated by the Israeli army back then. To the very last day, the people of Nitzarim was a orthodox settlement, mostly a farming community, but on the very last day, they were laying cement for a new home and they were davening in the main synagogue that the Palestinians would later destroy once we were totally evicted and evacuated from there. So I think there's also some symbolic value of retaking Nitzarim, even if it's just for strategic military purposes. Did you see when there was this photo, you know, split screen going around? in which were two brothers, I think they were pictured in Mitzarim or somewhere in the Gaza Strip. They used to live there, two little boys back in 2005, little cute kids pictured together and now pictured in combat gear inside Gaza together. And they highlighted the, the fact they're back inside. I mean, there's definitely a people for a large sector that's really a highly symbolic thing and also a very painful thing. Like here we are back in Gaza, nothing gained in the interim for, for having left it. That brings me to another topic I wanted to uh, discuss. You're talking about symbolic value and history repeating itself. Uh, we see now in the Israeli media many, many more stories. In fact, almost on a constant basis where family members of people who've been taken hostage in Gaza are being interviewed and they're telling their story. It's very important to do this. It's very important to tell their story. It's very important to get the hostages out and to do everything we can to do that. We've also seen this before. We've seen this when Gilad Shalit was kidnapped in Gaza. We also saw it in the, what's known in Israel as the Four Mothers, where you had uh, four mothers of soldiers who were uh, kidnapped into Lebanon. And basically, as a result of the ongoing pressure that they put on the government, 
we were forced to cut those military campaigns short, especially in the north. And that really led to the withdrawal of IDF troops from Lebanon, which then set the stage for Hezbollah to take over. So you have two competing threads here. One is the lives of the hostages. And, you know, we know that every Jewish life is a world and every Jewish life is important. And at the same time, you have the needs of the war campaign. And in war, we all know that sacrifices have to be made, decisions have to be made, which involves values, involves competing strategies. And, you know, at this point, I just wonder how this is all going to turn out. I think as you said, nothing here in Israel is local or short term. Everything about what we're seeing in front of us is things that have played out over years and perhaps sometimes decades. And one of the things that is hard to miss over here, it's, it's more than symbolism, it's, it's more direct than that, is that when it comes to the hostages, the hostages of Sunchez Torah of 2023 stems very much from, as you say, the Gilad Shalit deal of 2011. Because the two players, it was Bibi Netanyahu, who I think it's fair to say, it wasn't just in retrospect, many people felt at the, at the time, it, a terrible deal. For one, he released a thousand terrorists of blood on their hands for one soldier. One of those terrorists of blood on the hand, as we know, who is the leader, the warlord, the current warlord of Hamas. And it doesn't take too large, too great an intellectual leap to understand that that deal taught Sinwar himself the captives the ultimate weak point on the Israeli society and, and encouraged him and said, we've just got to keep digging tunnels again and again. Eventually we're going to manage. And, and he's now succeeded. And that is the terrible dilemma that Israel is caught in because Sinwar now, know, he knows who he's up against. He knows that this is a long-term strategy, which is triumph. But one thing that surprised me, Binyamin, is that uh, perhaps you have some insight into that, is that I honestly expected that we were going to see ISIS-style videos of the captives pleading with the Israeli government to release them. I thought we'd be seeing this by now, and I have no doubt that they are in the making or the possibility, you know, could be released. Why uh, is Hamas maintaining such discipline? That's an excellent question. I think that, number one, they understand the value of the hostages, as you mentioned. And number two, I think they've totally been uh, caught by surprise by uh, Israel's furious reaction to uh, the events of uh, Simchas Torah. And it could be that uh, they're just back on their heels and they haven't had time to organize uh, this type of response. What we did see, however, which hurt Israel, was when a couple of the hostages were released and one of them gave an interview at uh, the hospital. And uh, she basically said glowing things about her Hamas captors and uh, how kind they were. Yeah, the handshake with this hulking brute of a captor as she left, you know, as she left his captivity. And that was, uh, maybe that was all the propaganda success that Hamas needed and they don't feel they need any more at this point. But after that, I understand that uh, Israel has clamped down and they decided that uh, if any other hostages are released, that there are going to be zero interviews. Right. I mean, it's very much, this is as much a war in the media, as we noted on last week's cover, and a psychological warfare. This is, they're very adept at this, and this is very much part of their battlefield strategy as well. Benjamin, I think you had something else you wanted to raise about Avigdor Lieberman's claims that back a few years ago, he had predicted very much this type of scenario in terms of Hamas and was ignored. Ynet uh, Hebrew website this morning had an exclusive by uh, Mora Nazulai, who's one of their top reporters and uh, someone who I also happen to have a lot of respect for in terms of her journalistic abilities, not always the spin or the way she looks at things, but certainly the reporting is solid. And what Wyna did was they released a few pages of a document that Lieberman back in 2017, when he were 16, when he was defense minister, 
he basically warned the Israeli government, and Netanyahu also was prime minister at the time, that exactly the type of attack that we saw on Simchus Torah was brewing. And he said that if we don't do something about it in terms of a preemptive attack and reduce Hamas's capabilities of pulling off this kind of attack, that we were going to face uh, tremendous harm. And obviously he was 100% right. What I wonder is uh, why he chose to release this now. We know that Lieberman has been very critical of Netanyahu. We know he left the Netanyahu government back in teen and that uh, led to all the elections. We also know afterwards Lieberman took a turn, at least in some respects, to the left and decided to adopt a very anti-Karedi agenda, which is really a shame because he really was very forceful, both as foreign minister and as defense minister. And he was a strong right-wing uh, cabinet member. But in the meantime, at this point, why did he come out with this now? That's one question I have. I would suspect that part of it was after Netanyahu's news conference and uh, Motzei Shabbat, where afterwards Netanyahu released a tweet where he blamed the defense and intelligence services for uh, not being on the ball. So this was probably Lieberman's way of pushing back and say, excuse me, uh, we knew all about this and we knew this could happen six years ago, and you're the one who didn't do anything about it. I think that's uh, probably one reason why he did it. And uh, actually, uh, I had another reason, but I don't think you need to look too much further than that. You know, I just want to wrap that point up. I've said this before. I really think we know that the post-war is going to be commission of inquiry, heads of role, etc. But one thing that I can't escape is a feeling that if whoever says, we knew, we said, they're ignoring one reality, Israeli society from left to right, had its head firmly stuck in the sand for the last couple of decades. If anybody would have come and said a month ago, warning that we have to take over Gaza and our Hezbollah in Lebanon because we will see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds killed and our economy decimated, etc., they wouldn't have got a hearing at all anywhere. We know sometimes leaders can only shift public opinion so much. To me, the consensus, the wall-to-wall consensus was of ignoring the obvious and of living in this la-la land was very, very strong. And that is something you're going to have to factor in with all the Liebermans and all the post-war inquiry. I think that's something that we need to hindsight, kept in hindsight, as they say in England, British politics is very strong, but we should not forget the feeling. If you want to wrap up so much of our discussion last couple of weeks has been about the failings of the Israeli state. The fact that it was individuals armed with handguns rather than the army who had to fight back the terror hordes coming out of Gaza. That has been true also when it comes to the civil authorities and their response in so many ways to the plight of so many people left injured, wounded, and orphaned. The state has failed in many ways. And yet, the reverse side of that, we've seen an outpouring of that. And I always think I just drive past the end of my road here in Ramat Shemesh, I have an organization, it's a big organization called Ezrat Achim, which has a center, which is there busy doing everything, hundreds and hundreds of meals for people displaced and arranging apartments for them and so many different initiatives, incredible things. And now outside, I see a whole load over here. It's beautiful weather still, hot, but I see there's lots of winter jackets hanging outside. And apparently they're thinking of all these evacuees, many of them placed, many, many families placed here in Big Chemish. They're thinking ahead for their needs. So yes, I think the state has a lot to answer for, but Baruch Hashem, there's been the outpouring of Jewish kindness or chesed that we used to see, which is to me a bright spot. Norman, I wish you a good day and look forward to speaking to you again tomorrow.